This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tanis, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Today we're talking with Professor Robert Patman, who is a leading um, political studies person in the field of international relations at Otago University, Professor James Hadley, whose research interests in Russian foreign policy, European Union, nationalism, and ethnic conflict. Well, good morning, friends. Morning. Good morning. You can also podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to community or chaos. How do you see the future of Russia? Some observers who know Russia well believe it's not as simple as removing Putin, that there are political actors in Russia who might be even more reactionary and irrational than Putin, as hard as that is to imagine. Like kick off on that one? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's sort of two things there. One is, um, you know, who might replace them? And and then is there any chance of a replacement? I think at the moment, that's very unlikely. I think um, Putin's um, all in with this war. And at the moment, he's got enough people um, misled into believing that this is a kind of existential threat for Russia and that they have to back it in Russia to to kind of see any kind of grassroots uprising against him. And of course, there's so much kind of control against that anyway, and, and propaganda and so on. So I don't see much kind of movement from, from the broader public. And um, in any case, many of those who might oppose him uh, are either in fear or have left the country, or have been conscripted, actually. Um, I suppose the stronger possibility is somebody uh, within the elite um, again, I don't see much chance for that at the moment. Um, Putin has a very kind of firm grip. And also the top circle really are uh, in support of this war. Um, I suppose the possibility emerges more if Russia does uh, continue to be defeated on the battlefield. I think that's the kind of more realistic possibility that you may get some change from above. And this is where the other question comes in, I think, because that could be from those who are saying that Putin's failing and that he, uh, that uh, you need a change of power in order to get a victorious war and maybe prosecute it even more viciously. 
So that's where the possibility of kind of a worse leader coming in might come. But there are also those, presumably also including high levels of the military, um, who do fear what this is doing to Russia. Uh, and then this may also extend to kind of economic actors and so on, who do fear about the kind of longer term consequences of this. I can't see them kind of acting in the short term. Um, but again, depending on what happens in the battlefield and also the impact of sanctions and so on, uh, this is where I think the, the kind of most realistic um, and more reassuring change might come from. But even there, it's very hard to see how some new leadership would uh, kind of allow a, a uh, withdrawal from Ukraine, which is really what the West and Ukraine itself would demand. Yeah, so, I, I'd agree with Jim. Um, I, I think um, with one qualification, uh, because it's and I'm sure Jim would agree with me, it, authoritarian regimes, it's very difficult to predict or get a sense of what's happening next. In other words, we could wake up one day with a surprise development. Mm. Mr. Putin doesn't like to telegraph his weakness or his mistakes or the fact this has been a catastrophic war for his regime. Uh, um, I think it was Mark Galliotti said a couple of days ago, Mr. Putin is probably one more military defeat away from a collapse in his regime there are real problems and one of the things that's very difficult to evaluate um we shouldn't assume that this conflict because he's because this is an authoritarian regime we should not uh, assume that the authoritarian regime can act with impunity uh, particularly over time um mr putin is really facing a very tense period now um he's got this uh, partial mobilization probably 300,000 troops or more which by all the Russian military has been plagued by a whole series of problems and there's no evidence that the regime is getting on top of this uh, what sort of problems? Supply problems particularly after the HIMARS were uh, introduced on the Ukrainian side um, communications problems the Ukrainians regularly intercept Russian military communications Russia does not have control of the skies. Um, and what's more, all the evidence suggests that Ukrainians continue to fight with considerable more motivation than the Russians do. And they're taking heavy casualties. So uh, put those things together. Those problems are not going to be easy to solve. And why do I mention this? Because I think um, that the costs, Jim touched on the costs of the war. Uh, estimates vary, but it, uh, one Deutsche Welle recently calculated the cost for Russia uh, in excess of 800 million a week. So, you know, uh, th this is expensive business and the results so far have been disappointing. And I do think, like Jim, um, it's unlikely there'll be a groundswell or mass protest against Putin. But what could happen is that someone in his entourage may decide that they could do better than the boss and they'd have to build some constituency of support. It's no secret that elements of the Russian military are very, very unhappy with Putin's leadership. They feel they've been made the scapegoat for his incompetence. There were warnings from retired military officials in middle of February before he con in 2022, before he contemplated this invasion, that it would be a catastrophe. Having made those warnings, they probably feel um, that the person at the top didn't listen and therefore I, I think his credibility amongst key constituencies like the military the fsb has ebbed 
We just don't know how far it's deteriorated. So it's, it's, uh, what we do know, well, I was just going to say finish, uh, what we do know is that Mr. Putin now is in a politically precarious position unless he can achieve uh, some significant military progress in the Ukraine. Yeah, but just jump in with that. I mean, I think it's always um, very important, the point about the military. This is where I, I, I wholeheartedly agree that things can change very, very quickly. When they do, it's where the military are and also uh, other security forces that matter when you see a coup. So, um, and it's an interesting point. We may have a kind of naive assumption that military kind of want to achieve, you know, victory on the battlefield and they want to wage war. They don't necessarily. They don't want to see their personnel dying. They don't want to see uh, their resources dwindling so much which, which had been built up so and and then if you add in the case which i think robert alluded to there about the casualties and we think back to afghanistan and the kind of protest mm. against that so i do agree with all of that i do think galliotti has been a bit over optimistic about one step to putin oh, yeah. coming out and i think, I think one defeat is his, his theory <laughs> yeah i think he's um, a bit wishful thinking now trying to kind of round up uh, optimism um, and uh, I'm, I think the battlefield situation remains very unpredictable, so we really can't tell. Um, you know, we can talk about a potential kind of uh, Russian defeat again, um, but in many ways Russia probably has consolidated over the past few months, and some of its retreats previously probably allowed it to do so. So, like, um, uh, retreating across um, the river so there was less kind of exposed allows it to kind of consolidate so um, those kind of things I think are very hard to predict the, the kind of military side of it. I was wondering about it seems to me that with his supply and communication problems that a full mobilization might not make the matter better it might make it worse Yeah I, I think one of the problems with mobilization is that I mean they're being asked the, the newly mobilized troops, A, have not received, by all accounts, much um, much in the way of thorough training. And secondly, a lot of them have been conscripted. That doesn't mean they want to fight in Ukraine. And they've now got weapons in their hands. So if they decide they don't want to fight in Ukraine, um, there's all sorts of domestic uh, possibilities there. But I, I, I do think um, one of the issues is that Mr. Putin's now asking conscripted troops to do the job which the very best and the battle and the most experienced aspect or, or formations of the Russian army couldn't achieve in its first year. And uh, that's, a, that's a tall order. Yes, he's using his resort, you know, he's going back to an infantry led assault and he doesn't appear to be worried about casualties at the moment but i'd like to come back to jim's point in an authoritarian system we shouldn't assume uh that casualties are not a problem mr putin went to extraordinary lengths to avoid mobilization and he only mobilized because his professional army got the worst of it in ukraine and took a lot of casualties and um he he didn't want to take that step so I think he's on politically dangerous ground now because I think uh, uh, I, I can't see where he's going to get uh, a decisive movement forward. Ukraine will probably be on the defensive for the next few months as it absorbs an infusion of quite um, 
sophisticated weaponry uh, from NATO and the United States. At some point, however, that weaponry is going to be used, and that's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be a, a, a potential turning point in the conflict. We'll just have to wait and see. But um, I, I think Jim's point about casualties is important. Um, all these soldiers dying have families, and there's a sense of uh, it's all very well, Mr. Putin, um, saying there's more important things, and he's and he's elite are saying this. Um, Margarita Simeon, for example, the head of RT, has said there are more important things um, than living. But what many Russians observe is that none of the elite are sending their kids to fight in Ukraine. So th I think this is a potentially explosive issue down the track. We'll just have to see. But a lot depends, I think, on the progress of the offensive that the Russians have launched. Yes, they have made some ground around Bakhmut and they captured Soldar, but at enormous cost. And, um, you know, if you want to use a boxing analogy, I think at the moment Ukraine is sort of leaning into the ropes and seeing, uh, waiting for Russia to unload on it. But at some point, it'll be counter punching and it'll be looking to uh, take the fight to Russia. But it, it, as Jim said, it's very difficult to project these military things. And one thing we know about war. An invasion caused by war, I saw an, a, a, a war generated by an invasion, um, is that uh, it's always unpredictable. Things, ebbs and flows on the battlefield can surprise. So we can't rule anything out. Hmm. The um, One of the problems the West and Ukraine face, I think, is the fact that Russia is quite large, both population-wise and territorial. And, you know, if there's a, say they didn't try to take any more territory, even withdrew to some extent, they'd still be a threat to Ukraine unless some kind of, unless uh, some issues were solved and enforced. Or am I yeah. being too pessimistic? I mean... This is where the kind of longer term kind of route out see, it becomes very difficult to envisage. Um, short of a very dramatic kind of change in Russia, which even if we get that, it's, it's very unlikely it's going to be one which is much more kind of pro-Western because of what's happened in the past and because of uh, what they were experiencing now. So, I mean, I suppose a fundamental point about that is that nobody's talking about trying to um, change directly, kind of intervene in Russia itself. Well, I think region change hasn't, hasn't been successful. Yeah. I mean, Biden apparently was very careful this time around not to kind of make any hint about kind of regime change in his, the speech he made in Poland uh, recently, uh, whereas he kind of um, did sort of step into that last year. Um, and militarily, of course, it's, it's just not possible. And because of the uh, very explicit nuclear threat from Russia, that if Russia, at least proper, was uh, invaded, then uh, they would be prepared to nu use nuclear weapons. So we are faced with a situation where if Russia is defeated militarily or does withdraw from Ukraine, then um, you're right, there's still a very large and very um, populous Russia. Um, but... Uh, there's also this kind of question about where Russia ends now. 
and this is the difficult thing about uh, what how we perceive that idea about Russia being under threat, because now that Putin claims to have annexed these territories, does kind of advances into there then get interpreted as a kind of attack on Russia. So um, I think um, what potentially might happen is some sort of consolidation. What, what we're seeing, um, so Putin gave his annual address to the uh, Federal Assembly uh, yesterday, I think, um, which he cancelled last year. And there was quite a lot of attention in that to kind of um, integrating really these breakaway regions from Ukraine, which Russia's um, occupied and now claim to have annexed into the wider kind of Russia. And they've kind of done that to a certain extent with Crimea. If they're successful in doing that, then what we may see is some sort of, um, again, it depends on the battlefield situation, mm. but some sort of consolidation in people's minds in Russia that this is part of Russia. Um, and it really relates back to what Robert was saying before, this idea of sort of um, how do you... So militarily, they're really kind of relying on masses again, as they did, say, in the Second World War. Um, and that then de depends a lot on the attitude of those people. Do those people see that they're defending Russia? And this, does that rhetoric work in defending, say, Donetsk or Luhansk in eastern Ukraine? Or do they see it as a kind of a aggressive adventure, which uh, Putin should be held responsible for? Um, probably at the moment, they're, they're, Putin's winning that propaganda battle. But if... Um, that's, and as Robert says, if casualties continue to rise, then um, potentially you may get some sort of acceptance that, that this isn't part of Russia. Um, but I, really what, what I'm trying to kind of underline with my opening comment there is Putin's trying to frame this, and he did this again yesterday in this speech, as the West started it and the West is an existential threat to Russia and, and trying to destroy Russia and has been trying to do that for the last 20 years. And this is just not true. And the Western leaders have, have made that signal very, very clear. Um, so a lot depends on whether, to, to what extent, Putin's still ex um, successful in trying to kind of tell that narrative and get that narrative across domestically. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with, I mean, clearly the Russians want to consolidate some of the territory they've occupied and annexed. I'm not sure they'd be able to do that. Um, uh, the other thing is that the Ukrainians are in no mood to accept any Russian occupation of their territory, what is recognized as their territory under international law. Would that include the Crimea? And, well, that's an interesting one. They, the, Zelensky has said repeatedly um, that, they will, uh, that they will eject Russian troops in due course, and that will include the illegal occupation of Crimea, 2014. Yeah, and we also saw in the tail end of, I think, last year, um, an attack on the Kerch Bridge. And, I, I, you know, another very interesting thing, uh, Budanov, who is a senior official in Ukrainian intelligence, a remarkably measured individual, he predicted quite accurately um, in about April last year, a counteroffensive against Russia starting in August. In fact, it started in early September. Um, and uh, he said, uh, he recently said, <clears throat> they anticipate the liberation um, of Crimea uh, by August. Now, 
he may have got the timetable wrong. I think there's no doubt, though, the Ukrainians are going to go for Crimea. The reason that they're interested in this, they believe that if Putin loses Crimea, he won't politically survive in Moscow. And therefore, in other words, it may be a shortcut to the slog of ejecting troops from the eastern part of Ukraine if they can liberate Crimea. Uh, I'm not saying they'll do it. I'm just saying this seems to be the perceptions among some elements connected with Ukrainian intelligence and the Ukrainian military. So they obviously, I think it's fair to say that the Ukrainians and the Americans have reasonable intelligence on security questions in that area. Mm. I mean, I think that's a very sensible strategy. Um, I totally agree that if Russia does lose Crimea, and that's the end of Putin. Do you Again, think I have kind of concerns about what follows. Um, uh, and also, I think to a certain extent, there has been a normalization, even among people who, in other words, in other ways, would be very critical of Putin. Normalization of Crimea has been part of Russia, partly because of the time that it has had under Russian occupation and also because of the rather sort of special circumstances of Crimea plus the historical residents and so on. So there may be actually kind of more of a kind of surge of support. But I do agree if they can get Crimea, I think that that is the end of Putin. Militarily, um, is Crimea... I think militarily, again, very, very challenging. Is it more vulnerable than uh, Eastern Ukraine? Well, the Ukrainians seem to think it's doable, it's achievable. Um, we just yeah. don't know, and Jim's quite right to say this, we just don't know at the moment how the conflict on the battlefield is going to play out. We don't know what effect. We saw that the infusion of these highly mobile and precision artillery systems called HIMARS, they only have a range of about 80 kilometers, but they, they and, and I think Ukraine only has about 20 of them. They made a huge difference because suddenly they could take out Russian supply dumps within a range of uh, 80 kilometers with great precision. And before the counteroffensive began uh, in the last quarter of last year, they took out about 52 Russian supply dumps, which was the uh, prelude to that counteroffensive. Um, they're now getting um, a new missile, um, ground missile, um, which ground launch missile, I should say, and the acronym escapes me for the moment. It certainly has got the word diamond in it at some point, but it's got a range of 150 kilometers and they're getting this now. So again, that that means that Crimea is more vulnerable. Indeed, Russian occupied parts of eastern Ukraine are more vulnerable than before. But again, all this is speculation at the moment, because as the Ukrainians keep saying, they're not getting these weapons quick enough from their point of view. And there's going to be a bit of a, a few months before Leopard 2s, tanks and uh, these new missile, longer range missile have any effect or, or, you know, have an impact. Okay. What about Ukraine's long-term future when the, the, the immediate battles are over, say they eject them from Crimea and maybe the rest of Ukraine? Well, um, I think both Jim and I agree he probably hasn't got much future if he loses Crimea. Okay. I actually think 
actually he's in grave danger uh, now if he can't show some successes in the first six months of this year um his regime in my view was partly motivated by regime survival by going into ukraine in the first place hasn't worked out well um the attempt to create a greater russia at the expense of ukraine is going very badly and it's very costly i mean the basically mr putin has done a lot of the good economic achievements his regime changed uh, achieved in the first two decades of his leadership um so yeah i mean i i i think his position is precarious um potentially precarious and he has an authoritarian system and and it, it's it seems to me um i think it was john sweeney a journalist described him as a fragile monster there's a bit of journalistic hyperbole but in in a sense i do think he's quite vulnerable at this present stage um i think he acted in the ukraine uh, partly with a view to bolstering his situation in russia and that's not working out well and um Jim quite rightly pointed out there doesn't seem to be anybody outside his circle who can step in quickly. Uh, but I do think it's possible um, that someone will move against him within his circle or one of the key constituencies of his regime. Um, and I don't, and you know what? Whoever follows Putin is not likely to say more of the same. They're likely to try to build their legitimacy around that Putin made a mistake in Ukraine. So I don't necessarily feel that there'll be an intensification of the Russian campaign in Russia. They're losing the means. They lost. They lost three thousand tanks, three and a half thousand armor personnel carriers, and although there's rumours that China name China may give military aid, um, that they're basically their military capabilities have been drastically degraded, both in terms of the quality of their troops and their military hardware in the last year so it, it's getting i think uh, a very dangerous situation for mr putin i think he's downplayed a bit now the idea that he's going to kind of um take control of the whole of ukraine it's not disappeared entirely but he kind of downplayed it in his speech yesterday uh, it's much more in terms of kind of capturing this uh, land in the east um so Again, it comes down to whether he can consolidate uh, with that and particularly with uh, Crimea. Again, that's the question, you know, if somebody else comes mm -hmm. in. Uh, again, I can't see them negotiating on Crimea. Now, it may seem absurd to talk about it, but next year is supposed to be a presidential election in, in Russia. It'll be in March next year. And I say it may be absurd because we think of it as an authoritarian regime where Putin can engineer the result he wants. But it does matter, and part of his claim is that Russia is still a democracy. He kind of did these constitutional amendments the other year, which was very much in terms of a formal process, even though it gave him uh, the chance to stay in power for another 12 years. Um, so he can't really, it'd be very hard to see him cancelling those elections or postponing mm -hmm. them, because that plays into the narrative that it's a crisis and war and so on. And therefore, this is a potential spark, a, a potential situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah where if he's not been victorious by then, um, that there really is the potential for a framework in which uh, resistance against him might develop. So so we shouldn't downplay that. It's a long yeah. way off yet, it's a year yet, but again, that's, that's where a lot of what happens in the next six months, as Robert says, uh, will determine wider issues as well, I think. 
Okay, I'll play some music now. Dancing in the love light Birds sing that sweet refrain When we're dancing in the love light And I drink it up and start The heaven in your smile When we're dancing in the love light Dancing in the love light Well, friends, we're talking with Robert Patman and Professor James Hadley on um, conflict in between uh, Russia and the Ukraine, and also the what kind of future that holds. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to Community or Chaos 
Well, what's the future hold for Ukraine now as a, a country? Besides the fact that they'll have to rebuild a lot of infrastructure. I mean, they had a lot well, of people, it's a, a lot a of refugees. Country with yeah. um, a very strange population dynamic now, with a number of um, women and children having left. Um, but as Robert said, a very kind of united country at the moment. Um, there are some interesting aspects around that. There will be kind of divisions and uh, in the future between those who left and those who remained, those who were under. Um, the occupy, occupation and questions around how they behaved there and those who weren't if those lands are liberated. Mm. Um, I've been reading some interesting analysis around it. I mean, obviously, there's the European Union perspective, and now uh, Ukraine is kind of on the path to EU membership. I personally think it will take a very long time, and there's real political issues in the EU about it. But the positive thing about that is that that gives outside leverage on Ukraine to try to kind of... Um, uh, gives it incentives to go about the kind of processes which it needs in terms of democratization and um, tackling corruption and so on. And, and Zelensky's actually been fairly kind of proactive on that. He's almost preempting criticism around that by um, sacking those who he's seen as responsible for corruption or not doing enough to tackle it. Um, part of the analysis, though, is quite interesting. I mean, this is the situation for any war country. It does the executive, I mean, we saw it to a certain extent, that wasn't a war, but with COVID, of course, the executive becomes much more powerful and, and decisions are made bypassing parliament and so on. Um, so that's one of the kind of tensions, I think, at the moment that we've got this idea that Ukraine is defending democracy. It is democracy and it's on the path to European Union membership. But at the same time, it's on a war footing with all that means in terms of um, executive power short-term decision-making, some um, how you kind of deal with those who are opponents and so on, or the fact, in fact, that the opposition of, of either those who might have been more pro-Russian have either been kind of um, silenced from the media or voluntarily sort of shut down. So you've got all these things which actually kind of go against democracy at the same time that the wider battle that people are putting themselves into is to defend democracy, which I think means that overall it's a positive thing that, that, that they will win that defense of democracy. And that's part of what the battle's about. Um, that's the kind of political side. I talked also about the social side, about the kind of different groups within it. But then, of course, there's also the economic side. And this is where the outside actors really are going to have to play a very strong game afterwards. Or, or even where they can in, uh, at the moment to try and um, help to re reconstruct physically, of course, um, but also to get the economy going again and away from the war footing in the longer term. Should there be something like a Marshall Plan from the, U the UE for Ukraine? Yeah, I think so. And I think there may be. Yeah. I mean, they sort of have this um, this sort of idea of a donors conference. We've had it already, but more sort of on the military side. But I think that um, probably is is the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with what Jim's just said. And it, it seems to me uh, Ukraine's future, Marvin, depends critically on the outcome of the war. Yeah. If Ukraine prevails and succeeds in ejecting Russian troops back to the internationally recognized borders of Russia, um, it's going to face a testing time after a terrible experience. There's a lot of trauma in that country. It's, uh, it, it, let's be quite clear 
the behavior of Russian forces in Ukraine has been quite appalling in certain places like Butcher, Mariupol. Mariupol was a, a relatively attractive city. It's been 95% destroyed because Russia has resorted to artillery tactics where they just obliterate, oh. make no distinction between civilians and military targets. They practiced that in Syria. Yeah, but the uh, put that in uh, nuts and bolts terms, uh, probably um, something like in excess of 600 billion will be required to rebuild Ukraine. So yes, the Marshall Plan idea, uh, I think is relevant. Um, one idea that's been circulated by a Swedish economist based in Washington, Anders Asland, has argued that the West has access to about 350 billion of Russia's frozen assets in the West. Uh, they should be used as a down payment on the reconstruction of Ukraine. Um, but there's, you know, I don't think we can minimize the problems facing Ukraine. How about One, yeah, yeah. It, it, I, it, going forward, even with the support of the outside world, even with a sort of updated version of the Marshall Plan, it's going to be a tough time for that country, which has undergone such a traumatic experience. Mm. And also children taken out of Ukraine by Russian forces. Um, we don't. Jim may have figures on this. I, I can't get an exact figure, but it seems like a large number have been taken out of Ukraine. So the, these are social problems that have got to be addressed. The other thing that I think may be a surprise packet in the post, if Russia, I say, again, it depends on the outcome, but if Ukraine is successful in protecting its territorial integrity, um, I think one thing we may see um, is greater leadership by smaller and middle powers in the world generally. I say that because Mr. Zelensky has already said repeatedly the UN Security Council failed Ukraine. It provided no protection and has not been able to do the job it wants to do. He said he reserves the right to lead an international campaign to reform the UN Security Council, and that includes reform of the veto system. I'm sure he'll tread carefully, given the dependence on the United States at the moment. But that's an interesting thing. Um, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting possibility. And uh, if, again, one of the reasons I think we will see a more active role of middle powers and smaller powers in world politics, when this, if Ukraine is successful, one of the reasons I believe that is because the problems now confronting great powers are just too big for them to solve individually. And when we've seen unilateral actions like the United States in Iraq, when it illegally invaded that country in 2003, and now another illegal action by Russia in Ukraine, they haven't worked out particularly well for the initiators of unilateral action. So great powers, it's not that they're weaker than they were before, but we live in a world where many of the problems, international security, COVID-19, climate change, they're just too big for any superpower to solve. In fact, these problems can only be solved by international agreement of some sort. And that gives an opportunity to smaller and middle powers to play a greater role. Whether they take that opportunity is, an, is another matter. But I, I could, I, I think it's not unrealistic to envisage uh, a new phase in global politics if Ukraine successfully defends itself 
against the Russian invasion. Have the Russians succeeded in unifying Russian Ukrainians against Russia? Um, well, Do you understand I think, what I mean by the question? I think Jim was right to say that Jim Putin's propaganda has been I'm reasonably successful Ukrainian. in the areas of Ukraine Russia's occupied. Oh, I but, see. But you've got to weigh that against a negative factor. If you look at Kharkiv, uh, which had a very large Russian population, the Russian tactics of shelling everything in sight alienated a lot of uh, Russian speakers who had previously been very sympathetic to Russia. In other words, some of Russia's military tactics have actually alienated the people they claim they're going there to liberate and support. So, yeah, I, I think that's a problem that Mr. Putin has. I think that's true in in those areas. I really, I really do. Um, it's different again with Crimea yeah. because they basically, well, as China does in Tibet and so on, they've actually kind of settled people into Crimea from from mm -hmm. Russia outside. Plus, also, I think there was much kind of stronger support anyway for uh, Crimea to to join Russia or to secede from Ukraine. So again, I think that's different. Um, Yes, there will be some the Russian population or Russian speakers within um, these um, so-called um, secessionist territories who do support this. Um, we, we saw similar sort of things uh, during the Yugoslav wars with the kind of breakaway Serb regions. But if you actually look at the leadership, including military and um, and uh, political leadership, you, they're basically a bunch of thugs. Yeah. Um, you're talking and, about in eastern Ukraine, Jim. Yeah, yeah, there's sort of the people who are kind of there as the sort of self-declared leaders of Daniel yeah, yeah. and so on. Now, it's a bit different now that it's claimed to be part of Russia, so Putin's kind of got control a bit more over them. But in the, in the interim, before 2022, but when they broke away, you saw these um, very nasty fig figures who, um, you know, playing this kind of macho game of kind of Russian uh, nationalism, um, and some people played into that. And again, there was propaganda around that. Um, but I don't think they really have a depth of support. And then, as Robert rightly says, I think the actual indiscriminate way in which uh, Russia has gone about the war has alienated a lot of people who might have been more sympathetic to it previously. Do you think the fact that Russians had failed to take over Ukraine and is probably still failing, will this affect the... Chinese attitude toward Taiwan? Um, I think it's, it, it could. Uh, the Chinese position towards Russia has always been ambiguous because, you know, we've learned in the last few days that the Americans have expressed some concerns that the Chinese are preparing to arm uh, Putin's regime. Uh, the Chinese foreign minister has quite vehemently denied this um, the, this is Wang Li, Wang Li, and he basically said that that's not true. Um, the, the Chinese position has been ambiguous. Um, Xi Jinping at one point said that Mr. Putin, in June last year, he said that Mr. Putin's security concerns in Ukraine were legitimate, which was an outrageous statement in many respects, given how much store the Chinese traditionally put on territorial integrity and state sovereignty. But, um, I, you know, the China, China, in a sense, is vulnerable 
And when Anthony Blinken and Joe Biden recently warned the Chinese about arming, they coupled it um, with a threat. And the threat was that China would pay an incredibly high price if they did start arming the Russians. And what they meant by that is sanctions. And China's far more vulnerable than Russia is to sanctions. You know, we should keep in mind that China's rise to superpower status is based on three, at least three key markets. One is the United States. Just look at how much the uh, exp Chinese exports in goods last year to the US. $556 billion of Chinese products were sold to the US in um, last year, in 2022. Then look at the EU. It's not just the Americans who are threatening the Chinese. Joseph Borrell, uh, the EU foreign policy uh, specialist, said that he also repeated what Anthony Blinken said and warned the Chinese not to harm their own interests by supporting Putin's invasion. And uh, EU is a ver another big market for the Chinese. And then again, Japan. All the... These, these markets, Japan, EU, the US, are critical to China. The Americans and the EU are signaling, should China arm Putin's um, regime and its attempt to annex Ukraine, the Chinese can expect to pay a considerable price in terms of the sort of economic sanctions they might be on the receiving end of. I'd add to that that it's not just about markets. Germany, for example, is a very significant supplier of um, heavy industrial goods um, for Chinese industry. So good kind of machine goods, which are mm. then used to produce goods, which are then exported to places like the EU and so on. So Germany's kind of done the wager that it did with Russia, which it lost, that to engage in trade with China will kind of help to kind of make it interconnected and cautious. Whether they'll sort of change that a bit because of the lessons of their what they did with Russia and reliance on Russian gas and so on it remains to be seen. But I think it does support the point that, I mean, I totally agree that um, this would not be in China's interest. And I think also the military side of it, um, the difficulties that Russia's faced in Ukraine show the, uh, would push, you would expect would push the Chinese regime to caution. The only thing is that I always kind of thought that Putin himself was cautious um, yeah. and opportunistic, and what he did last year was not. So something had changed. I don't think that probably has changed yet in China, but with Jinping's own consolidation yeah. of power internally, there are concerns that that caution might go out of the window. Um, it's very interesting. I mean, I was reading this morning a report by European, uh, the European Council on um, Foreign Relations, um, looking at um, public opinion across different countries about the war. And what we've got is in China, particularly, and of course, it's very hard to gauge the real yeah. kind of opinions. Um, and also those opinions are shaped. But it does seem to be sort of buying into this idea that not necessarily supporting the Russian war, but saying that it was the West fault. Oh, yeah. um, more interesting, perhaps, uh, countries like India, which I found fascinating throughout this. I mean, it's still kind of normally the biggest democracy in the world, although there's real problems with it, or the most populous. Um, but India's been much more ambiguous. And that report was yeah. making interesting comments about um, Indian attitudes, which were that India wanted to kind of remain with good relations, in fact, quite reliant on Russia militarily. 
um, with Russia, with China, but also with the West. So this idea of sort of independent bloc, a bit like the BRICS, but probably without Russia to to that kind of degree and maybe without China to that degree. But I suppose this ties in with Robert's point about the kind of middle powers. Mm. Um, The only difference being perhaps that these middle powers aren't necessarily ones who are going to put, they might push for a change in the Security Council, partly for their own interest, um, but they're not necessarily ones who are going to stand up for um, human rights, national law against Russian aggression. Um, so it's a very interesting kind of splintering, I suppose, of the international environment. And um, and I suppose, again, this, but perhaps to a lesser extent than with China, is also on the back of kind of uh, uh, economic changes uh, in countries like India. Uh, yeah. Brazil might be another one, of course. So I think that's one of the very interesting areas, and for me, slightly depressing areas, is, is that kind of ambivalence towards uh, Russia's aggression. From yeah, I mean, it, it, there is such a. I agree, and, and in international politics, there's often such a gulf between declaratory policy and substantive policy, and China, although, you know, taking quite a pro-Russian line, at least in diplomatic terms, has actually done remarkably little so far. The Americans were as as much as you know, um, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, was saying just about a month ago. For all intents and purposes, the Chinese rhetoric has not been matched by their actions in terms of supporting Putin. Um, uh, so I, I think that's an important point. The Indian situation is particularly fascinating. Um, and in a sense, I'm not convinced that India's ambivalence towards the Russian invasion is a good thing. Um, India has ambitions to become an international player. It always says, that it's, uh, and quite rightly says, that it's a democracy. But it hasn't actually acted in solidarity with a fellow democracy, which has been invaded by an authoritarian state, which in turn undercuts India's credentials within Quad. But I mean, India says it likes to be with Japan and the United States and Australia and say, oh, we're we're democracies and we stand up against authoritarianism. But, you know, other members of the Quad are now saying, really? The other you know, thing uh, about so India it, it, internally... It, it's actually, I, I think India has taken a short-term expedient stance. I think its position over the Ukraine conflict could harm it diplomatically in the medium term. But mm. that's just my view. But I think it's partly it's partly Modi. It might have been different under yeah. a different leader. It's I'm, partly this kind Mo- of traditional strong ties with... Modi is actually doing a, a film... A film is a biography of his party. He's suing the BBC Mm. because of civil rights issues. His party has been a strongly nationalist party, Hindu nationalist party. And so he may have some actual sympathy for Putin in a sense. Yeah, and there's also, um, you, you know, tensions with Pakistan, tensions with China and, and, and territorial uh, disputes and so on. So certainly he can kind of play on that. And he's also kind of making this idea of Indianness being much more around sort of Hindu identity, which, yeah. uh, as you say, might have sympathies uh, with that. The, 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 the kind of self-identification as democracy is probably still important, um, but it's kind of how you see that so where Russia... I don't think it has been so much after the invasion, but previously in Putin's continuous rhetoric about countries shouldn't be sort of 
labeling themselves as kind of civilized and other ones as non-civilized where that's been successful in the past is countries like india saying we're fed up with the west telling us what to do we have our own say in this kind of thing so there's a bit of a tension between saying yes we're a democracy so we're in the us camp but also one of sort of saying we're going to follow the us mm. or follow europe because of this sort of um kind of anti-colonial and and also becoming an independent actor just going mm. back to your point about um taiwan though um and this is again i think it reinforces robert's point that china hasn't really been kind of um vocally supportive of russia and that is because of i mean the the old um alliance between them and in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization was about territorial integrity. Mm. Now, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, its annexation or claimed annexation of these areas is a direct infringement on that. So China can hardly kind of um, support this yeah. while clinging to this idea of territorial integrity. And this is where the Taiwan issue is a bit different because it's not recognized as an independent state. China still claims it's part of um, the, the wider China and Taiwan itself hasn't kind of fully declared independence or been recognized as independent, unlike Ukraine, of course, which was formally um, became independent uh, at the end of 1991. So if China were to take action militarily to claim Taiwan, it's not quite the same. Although my own view is that Taiwan effectively is a state in its own right. So this. Yeah. Um, wouldn't be infringing formally international law in that way, but would certainly be uh, illegitimate. I take Jim's point about the difference with Taiwan. I think he's absolutely right. What I would add, though, I do think the outcome of the Ukraine war, or the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I should say, and the, uh, Ukraine's attempt to resist it, the outcome of that conflict could have reverberations for China's attitude, because both China and Russia... Um, in recent years have been talking about the failing West. And I think both China and Russia ha leaderships have been surprised at the Western, uh, the robustness of the Western response to the invasion of Ukraine. Um, and that may have been one of the reasons that Mr. Putin miscalculated in the first place that, you know, he may have felt that he could safely invade Ukraine with, you know, with a bit of a wringing of hands in the West. And that's about it. And I think maybe the Chinese were initially sympathetic for the same reason. Um, Farid Zakaria has said the best strategy for dealing with China is for the Ukraine to defeat Russia. Uh, I, what he means by that is he thinks that you, uh, China will become much will become uh, much more cautious or even more cautious um, if Russia is roundly defeated in the Ukraine because it you know it may surprise them in that sense but one other point i'd like to make and i think it's very important um china has once or twice slapped mr putin down quite spectacularly in this ukraine war um he uh, when he remember he was nuclear saber rattling and then the chinese said under no uh, the chinese leadership said under no circumstances can the use of nuclear weapons be justified in the Ukraine conflict. And um, I thought that was interesting because they're clearly signaling to the Russians, should you go down that route of using nuclear weapons, we will not be on your side. And so don't expect it. And um, it was also a warning to the Russian leadership, I think. So, I, you know, it's very difficult to un really get a, a very clear grasp on the 
relationship between Russia and China at the moment. I think there's a lot of suspicion on both sides. Historically, there's been a lot of suspicion. And I think one thing about it, Mr. Putin's stock has gone down considerably in Beijing as a result of this conflict. You know, China has quite a hierarchical view of the world. And um, I think, you know, uh, Mr. Putin initially went into the Ukraine and talked about his partnership with China as if it was a partnership of equals. I don't think China ever saw it as a partnership of equals. And I think even less so now. Okay. Mm. I'm coming, um, coming full circle in the yeah. way I think, I that think we're might coming full circle. Also with the Russian population. We're coming full circle. Quite frankly, full circle sort of for time as well. As European don't want to be seen, especially okay. as reliant uh, on China. Okay. So that's a sort of backfiring. I think the other point that that report, which chimes with what Robert just said, the report I was mentioning, the European Council for Foreign Relations, was that idea of the consolidation of the West. And so that was finding that empirically that they're, has even among wider populations been a sort of uh, coming together and even the idea of the West sort of consolidating again, um, standing up against Russian aggression, which is a really important development. I think the only kind of danger with that is if it then becomes a sort of West versus Russia, West versus China, against Russia, okay, but if it's then West sort of versus Mm -hmm. China standing up against authoritarian states, that may then feed into exactly yep. the kind of um, uh, reflective policies that happened actually in the dynamics between the West and Russia, which partly contributed, although it's mainly about Putin, to the current um, situation. Okay, this might be a good time to end the discussion. Thank you both for your You're very welcome. input. Thank you. Input. Thank you. Thanks for interesting. Well, I think we've gone into some depth. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.